1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and after a long hiatus, I have my good friend J. David Weeder back with me. What's I see up, you've Dave? redecorated. <laughs> I have redecorated. <laughs> this is this is your first time uh, re recording in the new podcast digs. Yep. So, and here we think? are to complete a trilogy. <laughs> yeah, and this is a trilogy kind of, you know, that is, is custom made for you to be the, the co-host on. Uh, what with the fact that you were actually doing a Back to the Future podcast for a short time. And uh, here we are finishing the third one. So this one came out in 1990. Now, I believe it was March. It was 1990. Was this... First, first question that comes to mind is whether he was diagnosed or not. Was Michael Fox suffering from Parkinson's at the time they made this? When, yes, because it was during Back to the Future 2, he realized he had lost some of the muscle memory of doing skateboarding. So that was one of the earliest indications that Parkinson's was in his, you know, in his future or present. Do you but know he if wasn't he had been diagnosed, diagnosed by the later. time they did this? He wasn't diagnosed, no. He, I think he was done with these movies. I think he was on working on Spin City at the time. Okay. Uh, so... Did you you saw this in the movies? 
I saw this one in the theater, yeah. The, the two and three I saw in the theater first run, and the first one I didn't get to see until 2015, theatrically. Oh, okay. Uh, what was what was your initial uh, take on this? It's grown on me since then, because I thought it was good, but not great. I thought the last 30 minutes really grabbed me, but the rest of it was kind of off, because I didn't have an appreciation for Westerns. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the criticisms, and I'm not going to have a lot of criticisms of this, uh, but one of the one of the criticisms that I've heard leveled against it, and I don't 100% disagree, although it just doesn't bother me, is that the Western, that that this whole movie actually has more of a sitcom feel to it and less big screen theatrical. Yeah. I can give that some credence. It, it, it's got little moments like the Frisbee moment or ZZ Top making a cameo. Um, more. I mean, I know Huey Lewis made a cameo in the first one, but ZZ Top actually spun the guitars. Yes, which, which I actually love that. I thought, I Although, thought that was very cool. My wife didn't realize that was them until years later. Okay. I think I realized it at the time. I remember I had seen this with one of my buddies, and we had seen the first uh, the first sequel – and when it ended, he was pissed off because they left you hanging with the cliffhanger. And they added a trailer just to boot. Yes. And he, he, he just felt he felt kind of used by the movie, whereas I was fine with it. I was entertained by it, and I was fine going forward. And I did have a little bit of your experience as well, that, that I've grown to appreciate this more as time has gone on. But I did enjoy it right from the start. I just like it more now than I did then, even. Mm-hmm. And and I, I I enjoy that aspect of you know, was you know one one of the one of the factors in rating the movies is rewatchability. And I feel like this one is you know very easily rewatched. It's it's like like sitting back in a comfortable chair, and that might be even a little bit of that sitcom feel. That it's just you know it's just easy to just join it at any point during it and go along. I like the fact that they hit on some of the tropes from the first two movies. They, you know, they, they paid homage to it. There's Easter eggs to the first two. There's, you know, scenes that they mirrored. But it has a very different feel than the other two did. Yeah. You know, it, it, they, they did break new ground by going back to the Old West, which is apparently uh, Michael Fox's idea, according to what I had read, that he, he had suggested to Bob Zemeckis that, that he would have liked... You know, I think I think the story as I heard it was during the first movie they were talking about time travel as a concept, and he, you know, he, he was posed with the question, "Well, if you could travel in time, where would you go?" And yeah. he said, and the, "He said the Old West, and that's what sparked the idea." It was a, one of the number of, of places they talked about ancient Rome. One of the original ideas that would have been the second movie before they decided to make it a trilogy, was that they went back to the 60s and found George and Lorraine as flower children. So it was, a, yeah, there's a lot of ideas that were offhandedly put in, and this was to be, I mean, because two and three were originally one movie, and the third act of, the, of, three, of that movie was going to be Western. Like, this is just too much, and that's how they pitched it to make three, mm. uh, two different sequels. Yes, but uh, yeah, it's the seed started with Michael J. Fox. So... Zemeckis and you know apparently it's fun to make western so as a director 
that's that's also you know what I had read that they despite the fact that the schedule was crazy because you know they filmed two and three back to back especially for Zemeckis because while they were filming three they were editing two mm-hmm. so he was traveling back and forth from you know wherever they were filming to the studios and and being involved in both I'm not sure it, it it's almost reminiscent of the stories of Michael J Fox in the first movie traveling yeah. <laughs> back and forth from where they were filming this to where they were filming family ties just insane schedules i mean lack of sleep i can't even imagine it so we most of the cast is returning uh i'll say one of the cheesier things i it did again it didn't really bother me but it just I, i'm not sure i would have gone that way was michael j fox playing seamus uh seamus uh, mcfly yeah What'd you think on that? Uh, kind of like you said, it was it was a little cheesy. Uh, it was a little cheesy because you had in the first and second one you had the characters aging, but they were the same characters. Or in some cases, Michael J. Fox played his own son and daughter. Mm-hmm. So I get that there was a trope there, but it was still him married to a woman that looks like his mother. Yes. Excuse and that's me. that's his that's his paternal ancestor. So that's a little. Too coincidental, but yeah, that one stands out. Oh, you know what? I, I I was trying to think about that, and I didn't put that, I didn't make the right connection there because I was saying, well, it would be not, you know, it would be totally inaccurate if she looked like his mother, and then the father looked, you know, the, or the whatever the, he, I guess it would be grandfather, great grandfather, looked like Crispin yeah. Glover, because then yeah. that would be just, you know, ridiculous, and that's kind of a sitcom trope that you do see where they do that. Uh, but I was thinking, well, okay, you know, it's, it's just the one looks like his mother and the other one looks like him. So that would make sense genetically, but then that doesn't make sense because these aren't blood relatives to his mother. Yeah. Okay. So, so they screwed the whole thing up (laughs) a little bit. Yeah. Now, now we've just ruined the movie for me. Well, that Jaws rating is dropping. now. Um, I mean, I guess the only significant addition to the cast, significant, is Mary Steenburgen. Mm-hmm. Who's and fantastic. <laughs> I got to say that I'm not sure you could have anybody else do a better job as far as chemistry goes with Doc Brown. Because Doc no. Brown is somebody who you, I, I don't know, I vision him until this movie, and I think it was kind of not intentional, but I think it was clear. He was asexual. He was not. He wasn't straight. He wasn't gay. He just wasn't involved in any kind of romantic relationships. He was too distracted. It yeah, just wasn't he, a priority. Exactly. He 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 wasn't somebody who would be involved in romance. So you needed to have somebody who was going to have a real chemistry with him in order to break that mold. And I think they did a real good job with that, or I think she did a real good job because I think there was a real chemistry there. Yeah, it's hard to keep up with Christopher Lloyd. I mean, if you remember Taxi as Reverend Jim, he's just a powerhouse. Mm. So she not only kept pace, but she retained her own character's pacing as well. Yeah, so she right. didn't rush to join up with him, but she offset him very, very well. Yeah, they they, they definitely click. Uh, you know, there's some cameo appearances in here. Uh, Pat Buttram, who uh, I know from Green Acres, played Mr. Haney. Uh, there was Harry Carey Jr., who was uh, one of the, uh, you know, one of the ensemble people in a lot of John Wayne movies. Uh, 
And there was somebody else who was another one of the... Oh, oh Dub Taylor is the guy's name. And he, yes. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's kind of the Western version of that guy. Yeah, he is. I, I, he, if you pick a Western movie, you'll probably have him in it. So, you know, that, that, was, that was kind of good stunt casting as far as I was concerned. Uh, you know what I, I've recently picked up on, uh, and it's, this is a little bit of a, a you know, a, a breaking off of a, to a tangent, uh, but we started watching on Hulu uh, Freaks and Geeks, yes, which I had heard for years was really, really good, but I never got around to watching it. And it's, you know, one season and it was canceled and, you know, a lot of young actors that, you know, made their start starts in there. Uh, but one of the people in there is Thomas Wilson, who's Biff Tanner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had no idea that he was in there. In fact, I didn't really know of anything else he had been in as an actor other than Back to the Future until I saw him in there. And, uh, He's not had any any big parts since Back to the Future. That was his biggest. Yes. And I remember hearing, I remember reading like a review uh, back then about how he was like one of the nicest guys and yet, you know, he's playing such a jerk all the time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just, it got me interested in him and I started looking into his background and apparently when he first went to Hollywood to try and make his mark, he was roommates with, uh, Yakov Smirnov and Andrew Dice Clay. Wow. What a mix. Yeah. So see, it's a strange, strange, strange group, but, uh, that's, uh, I found that really interesting. He's he's great in this, just like he is in all three of them, as far as I'm concerned. Well, he's got more to do in this when he's got a very different character, because he, I mean, even playing Griff, his own grandson, is still pretty much Biff, another Riff. The, well, I didn't mean for that to go, but you have another Riff on Biff. There you go. That's a free one. <laughs> but here he's playing Mad Dog, and he is, you would not recognize him if you weren't aware of who this was. So as far as makeup, that's, it's the opposite of the Seamus McFly situation. Yes. And, and he, does he have the same, uh, does he end up with the same, are, are they the same uh, entourage with him? As in I the think other? these 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 are different people. Okay. Well, that's, that would, you know, it makes more sense from a logic point of view. Now, we've recently covered uh, some, uh, sorry, welcome to Sherwood. Uh, we've we've <laughs> recently covered some, Terminator movies, and we've talked about how the time travel aspect of them changes from, you know, it was that you could change the future, then it's the future is immutable and inevitable. Uh, One of the things I like about these movies is the time travel aspect of it or the impact uh, you have on time travel is pretty consistent in that what you do can impact the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I I think it's a convenient plot device that you know you have a photograph and you watch the thing change, uh, but just the same, I, I think you know they were very consistent in my opinion throughout as far as the time travel goes. Something I'm thinking you probably put more thought into than I did. So if, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if if if, uh, if I'm wrong on that, please let me know. No, you're not wrong. I, I I've spent way too much time pondering that. That the photograph, I mean, scientifically it wouldn't work that way. But as a plot device, as a visual guide, great idea. And then here, you've got the you've got Doc's grave as sort of the same signpost. And in the second one, it was a newspaper. Right. 
And th- and by the time this one comes around, they know. It's like, okay, let me take a picture of this gravestone. Yeah. Just to make sure. So they, you, I guess you, if you, because you're following the characters in a chronological fashion, even though they're going back and forth through time. So it makes sense that they would pick up little tricks like that. Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, one of one of the things I did like about this, from a, a storytelling point of view, is I think they made it exceptionally easy to include exposition into into the story between Doc's letter and. Marty going, you know, having to confront, you know, the doc in 1955 to explain to him what's going on and, you know, and everything. So, so it made it real easy for them to just kind of play it off. No, and they and they actually made it, they made it in a way where you've got this exposition, but there's details happening around you. Like, minute details where Marty picks up the trash can and the burned car, the uh, wind-up car is still there mm-hmm. to kind of tie it back in. So while you're going through these, you know, information dumps, you're actually getting these little nuggets, these little Easter eggs, which it, it makes it easy to feel like this hasn't been five, five, six years between movies. It's it's the same moment. So you right. it ties it back in such a comforting way. And that's got to be tough to do, to have that kind of time passing in real life and then try and make it continue to look like everybody's the same exact age and, you know. That, that no time has passed. I mean, if nothing else, you know, people tend to gain weight over as they get older, and uh, it's easy to, to kind of lose that same look. Yeah, I can. I mean, preach. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of, like, what, what key things we would have in here. Uh, you know, I guess the big pop culture thing is him referring to himself as Clint Eastwood. Yeah, which was set up in the second movie. Yes, and well, they have the same scene. Uh, well, they have the scene from A Fistful of Dollars where uh, Clint Eastwood's character, the man with no name, uh, has the steel plate and uses it as a, uh, you know, as, as a bulletproof uh, vest of sorts. And then, you know, we end this movie with a similar thing. Now, of course, in both movies, uh, the you know, if if the uh, person shooting shot for the head, that's it. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> that is the the one potential uh, flaw in the plan. Normally with shooting, you're, you're unless you're a, a sniper, you're taught to aim for the chest area. Yeah, well, it's it's the uh, the, the largest portion of the body. Yeah. So it's aim easy. small, miss small. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think the railroad scene, the locomotive scene at the end, is particularly well put together. Mm-hmm. I think it's you know it's it's exciting. It's got a you know a lot of suspense to it, and it's it's I think it's very well directed. It's uh, much closer to the frantic climax of the first one because if you look at that first one, man, that is an insane climax, and they never really get back to that height. But this one comes closer than the second one. Yeah, because there's I, just so many stakes, and they keep layering it on. And and we also again we play with the time travel thing with uh with with Doc Brown and then he you know he he and Clara eventually you know there's there's a lot of questions as to what's going to happen with them and then eventually they show up in present time with their flying locomotive. Yeah. <laughs> you, locomotive, you, you didn't you didn't care for that, huh? It took a long time to win me over with that, and I think it's because you had such a great scene where the DeLorean gets destroyed and it really has a a feeling of finality to it. Well, 
I mean, in their in their uh, defense, they never did go back and try and make another one. No, no, they won't. I don't know if there was ever a thought process where they where they seriously considered it, uh, or if you know maybe Michael Fox's you know medical uh, issues prevented them from even wanting to. Uh, but ultimately, I think you know this is one of the the stories where you know you have your trilogy. It's it's beautifully put together and just leave it alone if you mm-hmm. want to revisit it you know they did the cartoon they could do comic books in fact uh you've already given your elevator pitch for so, so, for a comic series oh yeah i forgot about that <laughs> uh you know that stuff is fine a, a, a fine way to revisit these characters but i don't see any reason why you would ever need to try and do an additional sequel or to ever try and remake this robert smekas has said point you know Point, what do I say? Point blank. I kept want to say point break. Whoa. Um, point, <laughs> point blank that there will never be a reboot or a sequel so long as he is alive. Well, he does retain the rights to prevent that, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Correct. And he's like, well, if my kids need money at some point, maybe, but I'll be long gone. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's, it's, it's rare for me to say this, but hopefully they don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm usually a glutton for if there's characters I like, you know, give me more. But this one, I think I think they started stretching it because the first movie really didn't need sequels. We lucked out that the sequels we got were above board, but I don't think you can keep that momentum going. Yeah, and and certainly uh, th- there's a sad aspect sometimes when you revisit these things and, and the actors are so much older. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking. Thir- we're <laughs> talking thirty Thompson years aged ago. Aged very well, just to say. She she has. She has. She's, yes. she's she's still thirty years older than she was then. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. you know, even with aging well, you know, the, the, you're going to see a signif- significant difference if you look at them side by side. Uh, I think that Alan Silvestri did a real nice job with the uh, score in this movie. Uh, you know. There are flashes of the original Back to the Future music, but there is also a lot of, you know, Western themed music. And I think, you know, I think you, I, I got the impression he had fun playing with the uh, genres a little bit here. And I thought he created, you know, pretty good uh, atmosphere with the music. Yeah. And you should definitely recognize this particular score. Me in particular? Yeah. Why is that? Oh, it was for a long time. It was the ending music on Back to the Bins. Oh yes, that that is true. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't make the connection there for because I always just thought of it as Back to the Future music. To be honest with you, <laughs> no worries. But uh, you know, I, you know, I think I think it created a good, like I said, a good, good uh, atmosphere as this movie went on. Uh, I'm I'm actually running out of notes on this. What do you have anything else? The the little details, the first act, um, still in 1955, really, I think it starts it off and still ties it back to the first one in such a strong way. And then you see, you know, the movie theater, everything's so period. And you get that other iteration of the DeLorean with the, the very large <laughs> uh, circuits mm-hmm. to replace the small one. The only real big gripe I have is researching this time period. There were not any Native Americans in California at the time. Okay. So that well, was a yeah, little that was, bit... That was a little, uh, you know, fun they were having with the background movie screen 
and and just you know then all of a sudden they're replaced with the real life uh, Indians, which I guess if they were making this now they would they wouldn't even call them Indians anymore. No. Uh, you know th- that's something actually that was in my notes was some of the uh, I, I think they had a lot of fun with the anachronisms in this, uh, some of which like caused me to have to actually think a lot, which I like that. Uh, there's one point where uh, Marty calls uh, Mad Dog Tannen a jerk. And you could see he looks like puzzled by it. So that made me think, because I didn't really know, well, when did when did the word jerk come into, you know, play as, as a, as a uh, pejorative expression for somebody? And so I looked it up and uh, there was soda jerk as early as the early 1900s, but jerk as a an insult was more, you know, they weren't 100% sure in, in the uh, thing that I read up on it, but they in, it indicated that it was probably somewhere around the 1940s or 50s that that became a, a common expression. So the writers knew well enough that, you know, Mad Dog Tannen wouldn't know what that meant when he said it. And then his, his comment, I don't remember his exact words, but he says something like, I don't like the way you're saying that to me or something like that. <laughs> Cause he didn't even know what it was he was saying. Like when, when Homer, it's like that name you called me ignoramus. That was an insult, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of what it is. Uh, but you know, they, they played with a lot of that stuff and, and I, I like jokes like that where if you, if you, you know, if you see that they're making the joke, it's clever. And if you don't see it, you know, you just move on and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take away from your enjoyment necessarily. Yeah, it's non-invasive. But it requires, you know, at least some extent of thought. And there's a lot of expressions like that, that we go through life and we, you know, we just think, oh, that's, you know, that's a common thing. Uh, but then when you find out, oh, they only started saying this in the 1960s or the 1970s or whatever, you know, it's related to this event that went on. Uh, it's like a light bulb goes on over your head. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) so, so I had that little light bulb with the, with the word jerk now, even though I don't have an exact answer for when it became, it came into vogue, but it certainly was not in the 1880s or 1890s. No. And, and actually I'm glad you said that because. One of the things that kind of, you know, my eyebrow kind of raised, probably not the first time I saw it because I was 12, but I think on a rewatch, but it was the idea that was the town laid out the right way in comparison to the 55 and 85? Actually, it is. And the weird thing is when I did research in my own hometown, it actually, much like Hill Valley, which is an, you know, oxymoron, um, it grew around the courthouse as well. I mean, it, it was in like, okay, so they actually did have some sort of indication of what's going on with a city development. Mm. And then you also have the connection to the prior movies that they're actually building the clock tower now. Mm -hmm. Yep. And if you look close at the railroad map, you can actually figure out where Hill Valley is located. And I kind of put it on a real world map. There's a ghost town called Red Dog, I believe, California. That's right around where that would, where Hill Valley would be. Northern California in the mountains. Hmm. So they actually, and it was actually a logical location because the railroad would have actually gone south. So it would have come from the east. Hill Valley would have actually had some sort of growth from the railroad because it would go down to Los Angeles and San Francisco. 
So there's actually a tangible realism to the idea of this fictional town. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, actually. And yeah. I know I know you're big on that stuff because I know when you were doing the Daredevil uh, show, you were like looking for the places in Hell's Kitchen and all of that. Yeah. So I know I know that's one one of your uh, you know one of your things. Yeah, nerd geography. Well, some and some of this just for geography purposes. Some of this was filmed in Monument Valley, uh, and if you're not familiar with Monument Valley, it was a very big filming. Uh, Vista for uh, John Ford who directed mm-hmm. a lot of John Wayne movies uh, and I just have a short list here of Stagecoach, My Darling Clementine Ford Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, The Searchers uh, and then Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, I think uh, one of the Lone Ranger movies or TV shows uh, was actually filmed there. So there's there's a lot of... I mean, it, it's an extremely scenic area, you know, with with mountains and buttes and, you know, flatlands and everything. So it, it, it was a pretty cool choice for a lot of movies. And then, you know, when they go back there, it's uh, that's pretty cool, too. If I remember correctly, this set was still standing for quite a while after this. I would love to go see some of those sets that are still standing when when they are, but never get the chance. Nope. Uh, anything else on this? I think we've hit the high points. I think we've kind of hit everything that needs to be hit. Without uh, other, other than what we said, do you have any other negatives about it that you uh, can point to? In the long term, not as many. Um, I mean, we've we've hit the main points of my my nitpicks. Ultimately, it was a it was a it was a worthy ending to this trilogy, where the middle one is this chaotic thing, and the first and third would have kind of a similar premise. Yeah, I would I would I would agree, and and but again, I think I think it was it was it was a good plan to put it in the old west and kind of change change some of the themes that they had going so that it wasn't going to feel like, okay, now we're going, you know, the, the, the second one kind of mirrored a lot of things in the first and, and went along with it. And if they did the same thing in the third, it would, I think it would have felt old and tired. Yeah. So by, you know, just changing the background to it and all, but still maintaining the relationships and, you know, some, some of the, uh, the, the pacing and, and just kind of the, you know, the, the themes, I, I think, it was, it was a, a wise idea. Yeah, I agree totally. So how do you rate this? Upper middle Jaws 2, so not an extremely high, but upper, just above the middle. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to put it right at the middle of Jaws 2. I think it's very entertaining. Uh, again, it, you know, it's, it's despite the fact that we got the whole Old West thing, it feels like a smaller movie, and that's, I guess, that sitcom feel that we talked about. But I think the thing that props it up, you know, firmly into the Jaws 2 territory is, again, like I mentioned earlier, the rewatchability, which I think is extremely high on this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very content with it, you know, again, being a, a dead-on Jaws 2. So I guess that's it for the trilogy. And the question is, when will Dave be back? Possibly to, do, to hit the... the, the third episode of the Jurassic Park series, perhaps to do something totally different, and perhaps we'll be back with Holly to 
start the uh, Fantastic Beasts movie uh, movies if I can uh, force them to watch them again. There's going to be a lot of force needed on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. Thank you, Dave, for coming on with me again. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Mom? Mom, is that you? There, there, now. You've been asleep for nearly six hours now. I had this horrible nightmare. I dreamed I was... I dreamed I was in a western. I was being chased by all these Indians. And a bear. Well, you're safe and sound here now at the McFly Farm. McFly Farm? Ah! Well, you're my, you're my, my, who are you? Your name's McFly, Maggie McFly. McFly? Maggie? And that's Mrs. McFly, and don't you be forgetting the missus. And what might your name be, sir? Well, it's Mc... Eastwood? Uh, Clint, Clint Eastwood? Well, you hit your head, Mr. Eastwood. Not too serious, but lucky for you, Seamus found you when he did. Seamus? Me husband. You'll be excusing me, Mr. Eastwood, while I tend to William. William? Oh, it's okay, William. It's okay. That's William? Sean McFly, the first of our family to be born in America. Oh, it's okay, Will. This here is Mr. Clint Eastwood here visiting. He certainly likes you, Mr. Eastwood. Maggie! I've got supper. I'm not one to pry into a man's personal affairs, but exactly how is it that you came to be way out here without a horse or boots or a hat? Well... My car horse broke down, and, and a bear ate my boots, and I guess I just forgot my hat. How could you forget a thing like your hat? Would you like some water? Uh, yeah. I'll tell you what I'll do, Mr. Eastwood. I'll help you find your blacksmith friend. You can stay the night in the barn. And tomorrow, I'll take you as far as the railroad tracks. You can follow him straight on into town. I'll even give you a hat. That's great. Thanks. find the barn comfortable. Never had any complaints about it from the pigs. Seamus, huh. mm. a word with you. Oi. Will you hold him for a minute? Are you sure you're not after bringing a curse on this house, taking him in like that? He's such a strange young man. Aye, but I've just got a feeling about him, Maggie. And after him's the right thing to do. That's important. Hey, buddy. Look how the Bobby takes to him. Let's 
Cruel never takes to strangers. It's almost as if he's connected to us. He will. So you're my great-grandfather. The first McFly born in America. And you peed on me. <laughs> 